Well, good morning. <clears throat> Glad to see that you're awake. It's always a good thing on a Sunday morning. So on Tuesday morning, I, or Tuesday afternoon, I guess it was, I received a call from one of your elders asking me to preach this morning so that Craig could remain away for his daughter to give birth. Or, um, and having become a grandfather myself for the first time in the past year, nearly a year ago, I was very sympathetic, so uh, I decided that, you know, it might be a good idea. My daughter, who is a youth director at a PCA church in Atlanta, uh, gave birth to the most beautiful child I could ever imagine, um, and in two weeks, we celebrate his first birthday. It's an exciting time. But my wife reminded me, after I got the phone call, about the World Cup taking place. And the day after the call, England was scheduled to play Croatia, with the winner advancing to the final, which is taking place right now. I think it just started in the last two or three minutes. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's what the world calls football and we Americans call soccer. Um, about 22 years ago, I think it is, I moved with my family to England, and ever since have been cheering for England in international competitions. So my wife and I got talking about this, and we thought, well, Murphy's Law might take effect. And, you know, Murphy's Law, whatever can go wrong, will go wrong, that sort of thing. Um, and in this instance, that would mean that if I accepted the invitation to preach, that England would win and I'd be in the pulpit while instead of watching the match that I've dreamed of watching for two decades. <laughs> if I declined the inv invite to preach, England might lose, and then the final wouldn't really matter to me. I should learn it's not all about me. Um, however, we were both wrong, and England lost in overtime to Croatia. So they played yesterday for the third place, and Saturday, uh, sadly, they lost. Um, and now I hope by the time this is over that Croatia has won its first World Cup. But it doesn't really matter that much to me. So um, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, we're going to take a look at a passage here. It's on page 912 in your pew Bibles. And if you would stand for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. And I'll be reading just to verse 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city where they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, 
the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of the Lord, the word of God, with boldness. Have a seat. What is it about the name of Jesus that's so offensive? Rico Tice, in his Christianity Explored course, suggests that a person can stand on the corner of a very busy city street and shout out, God. No one's really disturbed by it. They might think the person's weird, but they're probably not going to pay much attention. Yet if somebody shouts out, Jesus, people will go out of their way to avoid that person or actively protest and try to shout the other person down. Perhaps God is a very generic idea to people, and Jesus is a very specific message. Hearing the name Jesus, people know that there is an exclusive claim to the way, the truth, and the life that God offers, wants to offer us. Any other name we can write off, but Jesus is different. In our society, there's a tolerance of any religious views except for taking Jesus seriously. Those who take take Jesus seriously are finding themselves not only at odds with our current culture, but facing serious opposition if they take any sort of stand for the truth of the Bible. Our passage begins following a series of events that we need to know about to really appreciate what's going on. It went like this, and I'm going to kind of summarize the previous part of, part of the previous chapter and the, and the beginning of this chapter. Peter and John go up to the temple. This would have been too long a reading to have done together. Um, Peter and John go, uh, go up to the temple at prayer time. I believe that would have been around 3 o'clock in the afternoon where a large crowd would be praying in the temple courtyards. Now, I can picture this in my mind somewhat because a month ago I visited Israel. On one of the stops on our tour was the Western Wall where uh, Jewish, Christian, Jewish people um, visit daily to pray. They believe that the divine presence has never left this particular spot because the Western Wall is the closest proximity that they can get to where the temple once stood. When Christians gather for prayer, it's usually a group meeting. Small group, large group, you know, something like that, which is very different than Jews going to pray at the temple. They have prayer books they use. They have shawls that have tassels that they hold. All, all that to say it's a personal prayer time that a whole bunch of people gather at the same time and, and are praying alone, which is what I believe is what uh, Peter and John are going to do. In the early church, the apostles had not stopped doing the religious activities that they had grown up with as Jews. Well, on the way up, Peter and John encounter a cripple. This man who was, uh, this was a man who was carried regularly to a gate outside the temple courtyard. Being crippled, he would not have been allowed to go in. So that was as far as he would get to go, is in this gate sort of area. Instead, he sat there and he likely had a blanket or a bowl in front of him, and people would give money. Doing this for decades, he was a known fixture to all the regulars that visited the temple. Peter and John stop, they interact with him, and it's interesting to, you know, when you look at the passage and see how this works, interact with him and the man is healed. He leaps up, walks around, starts dancing, 
and praising God. The man then follows Peter and John into the temple courtyard for prayer, a place he had never been. Immediately, a crowd gathers because they recognize this guy. This is the lame man who has been laying in the same place on a regular basis for all these years. And they see that he's dancing around. They see that this miracle has taken place. So Peter then addresses the crowd and preaches a sermon in which he proclaims the gospel boldly and clearly. However, the temple guards and various other religious elites notice the crowd. They hear what Peter is preaching. They don't like what Peter is preaching. And they take them both into custody. It's late in the day, so Peter and John spend the night in a cell awaiting a hearing before the Sanhedrin. This is the same powerful group of men that Jesus faced. They didn't like the gospel then. They didn't like the gospel now. So, morning comes, and Peter and John are taken before the council, who begin to question them. Peter then does the most shocking thing. He boldly proclaims Christ. This is the very thing that got him landed himself in jail in the first place. He's just asking for more trouble. He boldly proclaims Christ. Now, this is Peter's third sermon in Acts. We see one in chapter 2, one in chapter 3, and this is in chapter 4. He is doing, actually, two in chapter 4. Um, so it's 3 and, and 4. Anyway, he's doing exactly what he would later exhort all Christians to do when facing trials and opposition when he writes in 1 Peter 3.15 to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. The Sanhedrin see these men before them and they're astonished with the boldness with which they proclaim the gospel. They also see that this man has been healed and that there's large numbers of people praising God as a result. So they have little choice but to release Peter and John, even though they would have preferred to have punished them. However, they release Peter and John with a strong warning telling them not to speak of Jesus. Peter and John reply that they cannot stop speaking of the things that they have seen and heard, and they get further threats from the Sanhedrin, and then they're released. That's where we come to our passage this morning. They return to their people, their fellow Christians. They report what has been told to them by the council, and they immediately turn to prayer. And this passage is this amazing prayer that we get to read in detail. We see in the passage their prayer as well as an immediate response or answer to their prayer. This is a pivotal moment in the book of Acts as Luke reveals a pattern of persecution followed by prayer proclamation, and power. We'll look this morning at the reason for their prayer, the rightness in their prayer, the request of their prayer, and the response to their prayer. So the reason for their prayer, they had just returned from a night in jail and had stood before the council defending themselves after preaching the gospel and healing a crippled beggar. They faced threats from the council if they dared speak of Jesus again. Had they only spoken of God, that would have been fine, but their preaching the gospel of Jesus was not acceptable to the religious leaders of the day. In fact, it was downright offensive to them because Peter pointed out that they were the very ones who sent Jesus to his death. This persecution is the occasion for their prayer. 
yet they don't respond to persecution the way we might expect them to. Rather than to seek tr- to avoid trouble in the future, they double down on their convictions. To do that, they must seek God's help. In Acts, Luke records much about the persecution of Christians and points to the persistent prayers of the early church. The persecuted church is the praying church. When there's opposition to the gospel, the church must pray for the power of God to overcome that opposition and for the courage to proclaim the gospel in spite of the opposition. The reason they pray is their passion for the gospel. I went to Jerusalem last month to attend an international conference in which we heard from leaders from uh, Africa, um, South America, Asia, as well as Australia and America. We learned of the trials and persecutions that some Christians have been facing over recent years. And I'll not forget, particularly, of hearing from an African leader whose house had been burned, his wife had been attacked, both by a radical group that were opposed to the gospel, And he stood before us with joy and said, I will continue to proclaim Christ faithfully despite whatever they do to me. This is the passion for the gospel that we see in Acts chapter 4. The rightness of their prayer. Luke records the details of this particular prayer alone in Acts. Many times he notes that the church prayed together But this is the only place he gives us the actual prayer itself. The fact that he gives us the text of the prayer indicates that he thinks he sees it as a model that we can make use of in terms of prayer. The content of it's important. Before we looked at the request within the prayer, there's some significant things to notice about the prayer itself. Within the prayer, we see a right view of God expressed by the believers. Five out of the seven verses that make up the prayer are describing God. As creator God, he has unchallengeable power and we are subject to him. As creator, he graciously and bountifully supplies us for each and every, supplies for each and every member of his creation. We see that in verse 24. As revealer, as revealer God, he has spoken to us by the Holy Spirit through the prophets and the apostles, as mentioned in verse 25. As sovereign God, he works out even the minutest details of history, we see in verses 26 to 28. This last one is rather unique in this prayer. Acts 4 is one of the only places we find the expression sovereign Lord in the New Testament. This is especially important when we consider that persecution is fueling their prayer. Recognizing God as sovereign is is to make clear that no one can harm them apart from God's will. God is fully in control all of the time. The right, their right view of God is what gives them courage to pray as they do. Their right view of God enables them their fearless response to persecution. As a model of prayer, we see the right way to pray starts with a right view of God. The rightness of their prayer is also seen in the unity of their praying. Verse 24 tells us that they raise their voices together to God. In some versions, it says they prayed in one accord. The idea is that of unity of hearts and minds rather than praying the way we recite the Lord's Prayer together. Two chapters earlier, Luke describes the unity of the church and the verses that follow this passage speak again about the unity of the church. 
Luke is making a significant point about the early believers being of one mind and one heart. They had one focus, to go and make disciples of all nations. Nothing would stand in the way of their purpose. Psalm 133 tells us that where God's people are unified, the Lord pours out his blessing. The folks that gathered on this day had a rightness in their prayer. Their view of God was right and their unity of mind and heart was right. It's no wonder that Luke takes the time to share this prayer, in particular as it models good prayer for the church. The reason for their prayer, the rightness for their prayer, and then the request of their prayer. The shortest part of the prayer is actually the request that they make. There are actually three requests here. First, they simply want God to hear their prayer. They've worded it more specifically along the lines of asking God to look at the situation, look at their threats, and grant them, his servants, their requests. It's as if they're saying, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer before they make their main request. Second, they ask God to grant them boldness in speaking his word. This is the most specific and explicit part of the request. They want boldness to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the pinnacle of the prayer, and in it they're asking God to give them courage and strength to do the very thing that they have been warned against. The council threatens them not to speak of Jesus. Rather than asking God to protect them or grant them favor, they're asking for God, they're asking for more trouble. They're asking for boldness to proclaim the gospel. They understand that the word of the Lord is powerful and transforms lives. They want to speak the word of the Lord with boldness so that other lives would be transformed as theirs have been. This passion for the gospel is crystal clear. They have no reason to fear because God is in control. Therefore, they want to be bolder than ever with proclaiming the word of truth. Finally, their third request, like the first, is more subtle in its warning, wording. They want God to follow their proclamation with his power. They want healings and signs and wonders to follow the word of God. But they don't ask God to give them power to heal, nor do they ask for the ability to perform signs and wonders. They expect God to follow their proclamation with his work that will testify to the validity of what they have to say. The heart of their request is for boldness to share the good news about Jesus. I've been in churches that are passionate about proclaiming the good news and seeing people come to faith, but don't have any expectation of God doing miraculous things in their midst. I've also been to churches that pray for signs and wonders, thinking that's the most important thing, while neglecting to get serious about spreading the gospel. I've also been in churches that have missed the point entirely and are more focused on fellowship and fundraisers than the reason for their existence. The church today must be praying for boldness to proclaim the gospel because, God, because society is telling us to be silent. The media ridiculing Christians today is not all that different than the council threatening Peter and John not to speak of, Christ, uh, speak of Jesus. And then finally, the response of their, to their prayer. In the final verse of the paragraph, we see God's response to this prayer. His response is immediate. The place was shaken. This was a sign of the presence of God. 
Clearly, God has heard their prayer and is indicating it through an earthquake-like experience. God has a way of giving glimpses of his plans to his people, and this is one of them. The good news of Jesus will shake the foundations of the world. The world was forever changed when the gospel spread because Jesus uh, shook things up. As they felt the movement, they would have known that God heard them. Then we see the second request answered. They were all filled with the Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. The very thing they asked specifically for, asked specifically for was being fulfilled immediately. God was pouring out his blessing on this unified group of believers. Luke shows us the answer to this prayer as it plays out through the rest of the book of Acts. We see the persecution that fuels prayer for boldness in proclamation, which is followed by the power of God. All this leads to the spread of the church. The closing phrase of Acts says that Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God with all boldness and without hindrance. So we see this throughout the entirety of Acts. So we see the reason for their prayer was the passion that they had for proclaiming the gospel. This was spurred by the, by the persecution they faced, but they did not pr- pray for protection. We see the rightness in their prayer in that they had a right view of God and a right understanding of prayer, as well as a right unity of mind and heart. We see the specific request of their prayer is for boldness to proclaim the word of God, a.k.a. the gospel. And we see God's response to their prayer in his immediate sign of having heard it and answering their request for boldness. The simple pattern we see here is proclamation, leading to persecution, leading to prayer, leading to more proclamation, and seeing God's power at work. Now, what do we do with this? We've looked at this prayer, but how does the passage relate to our lives today? Because of the world that we currently inhabit, a society that seems determined to marginalize real Christianity and slander a biblical worldview, there are areas that I believe prayer needs to be emphasized. It is simply stunning to see how hostile the world around us has become to our faith. Since the mainstream media now labels Orthodox Christians as extremists, we find ourselves as as Bible-believing Christians in danger of suffering opposition and possibly persecution. As a result, I believe there are three areas that we can strengthen our prayer efforts. First one is corporate prayer. The church prayer meeting is largely a thing of the past, and yet the need for it today is greater than ever, or has been certainly in centuries. Some don't even know what a church prayer meeting is. I had not heard, one, heard of what that was or heard of one, um, nor experienced it until I moved to England. The church that I became a part of has a prayer meeting every other Wednesday night. It gathers about a quarter of the 400-strong congregation. They believe in the power of prayer, and they're passionate about the gospel. So they pray for about an hour for the spread of the gospel, as well as the needs of the community and needs in the church. Having seen God answer their prayers, they've been carrying this tradition on for decades, many decades. In England, at best, it's about only 3% of the population is in church on any given Sunday. So you can know there's opposition, there's there's, uh, reluctance in, in the culture of England. The culture is antagonistic to the church. 
more specifically to faithful Christians. The liberal Christians, they don't mind so much, but it's the faithful Christians, the Bible-believing ones that people are antagonistic towards in England. So inviting uh, friends to church is risky business. Sharing the gospel is risky business. Not only is it a hard sell, but it may end friendships. It may cause people to be marginalized. It may mean that, like I heard from quite a few different people that I knew, that folks at, at work or at school wouldn't socialize with them because they knew that they were Christians. We in America are not far off from that reality. I have, because of my job, a lot of conversations with clergy who are in churches that want to grow. And they often, they really need to grow. They express to me an interest in reaching the people in their community and building up their congregation. And the question in my mind as I listen to them is, where is your prayer meeting? When when folks want to grow the church, why is corporate prayer not the most important thing on their minds? Why do we not pay attention to the example set for us in Acts? The clergy I speak with um, are often found on their, on their, in their churches on their knees praying for their congregations. They lead church uh, services that have lots of prayer, and there's church meetings that have prayer, and there's small groups, house groups, community groups, whatever, Bible study groups that pray together, but it's not what I'm talking about when I say a church prayer meeting. When does the congregation come together to pray specifically for boldness in proclaiming the gospel? We're seeing an increasing trials and oppositions to the truth of God's word, and it's only getting worse. I don't see it letting up. We need to pray for boldness. That's corporate prayer. Another one is community prayer. This congregation has an unusually high percentage of people involved in community groups. We all need to be drawn into the prayer conversation. This is how many of us learn to pray. We need to actively pray for one another together and pray for boldness in our proclamation of the gospel in whatever our setting is. When I was in college, I joined up with the youth ministry organization as a volunteer leader. The plan was <clears throat> that after training, we had several, a good long number of weeks of training. After that, we would join, uh, become part of a team where we would be working with high school students. We all looked forward to it. And then what we discovered after training was that half of us were going to be starting a new group across town. And the other half would be joining a team and immediately working with high school students. Well, much to my surprise, I got assigned to this team that was going to start this new group across town. So I was expecting on Wednesday nights I'd be spending my time with high school students, and all of a sudden on Wednesday nights... I'm spending time with this team, and our leader said, we're going to get get together every Wednesday night for an hour of prayer. At first, I just sort of panicked. I didn't really know what to do with that. I had never spent an hour with a group of people in prayer. I was a college freshman, and that was just a foreign sort of concept to me. But after, uh, after we settled into that, I learned from that experience, a lot about how to pray with other people, because we just did that. It was just, once you start doing it, you you realize what it's all about. After several months of prayer, we went out and did ministry. God showed up, and we got that new ministry off the ground more rapidly than any of us imagined was even possible. 
It was an exciting, exciting experience, but a learning experience. We learn how to pray together by doing it, not by hearing about it or, or something. So uh, corporate prayer, community prayer, and finally, collegial prayer. When I was working in England, one of the things I was very impressed by was the establishment of prayer groups around any sort of common ground. Christian parents at local schools, not Christian schools particularly, Christian parents at local schools met regularly for prayer for the school, for the teachers, for its pupils, its families, etc. Other prayer groups existed in workplaces. When my wife was transferred from one school to another in Somerville, she discovered that a group of the teachers prayed together regularly at her new school. Her previous school, that wasn't going to be happening. It was not a, a warm place. And she discovered what a huge blessing that was, and it confirmed to her that she was in the right place and has been there ever since. Christians in a business office that pray together is another example of what I mean by collegial prayer. Why is this important? Think about the flack that companies like Chick-fil-A have faced for standing for biblical values. We can only stand together if we pray together. We can only stand together if we pray together. There's a need for Christians to start prayer groups in businesses, at schools, in neighborhoods, wherever the gospel is being opposed. God is calling you to start a prayer group in a context that you're a part of. We have a sovereign God who is in control of all the persecution and opposition that we might face. We live in a world that would rather we shut up about Jesus. We need to pray for boldness to speak the word of God to others because the world needs Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask that with the help of your grace, we may proclaim your truth with boldness in a world that is increasingly hostile to that truth, and that we may do so for the sake of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you now and forever. Amen.